Welcome back to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. This is episode 186. All the content you hear on this podcast is non-commercial, fair use, creative commons license. So we get that straight. Before we start the podcast, we'll get into a quick little bit of housekeeping. So I want to give a shout out to a podcast by the name of Macro Aggressions. And the host is Charlie Robinson. I've been really listening through, uh, going back, 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 listening to um, successive prior episodes of his podcast. He's entertaining. He's funny and informative. And we need a lot more people like Charlie Robinson. He's also a collective of podcasters by the name of Union of the Unwanted. So you might want to give them a listen. That's Sam Tripoli. And uh, J- Jason Burmis and a lot of good podcasters on that. And Charlie Robinson is on that too. So that's that's definitely a must listen. And then I want to give a shout out to a listener. He sent me an email. His name is Ed, Ed Alfonso Lopez and his wife Leah Babian. If I pronounce it wrong, I'm sorry. Um, it, it, 
Mr. Lopez, his wife, um, is writing a book or is in the process of writing a book addressing the Armenian genocide and a bunch of issues related to that. I know Sam Tripoli is Armenian. He touches on these subjects a lot. But I know a little bit of it, but I need to do more research on this subject. So uh, Ed Alfonso Lopez, his P.O. Box is P.O. Box 5762, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. I'm going to repeat that. Ed Alfonso Lopez... P.O. Box 5762, Twin Peaks, Idaho, 83303. And um, again, he, you know, wrote to me about himself and, you know, uh, you know, his comments on the, how the podcast has helped him and about how his wife is writing a book or in the process of writing a book on the Armenian genocide and those type of issues. So if there's listeners out there that, you know, are interested in that or would like to collaborate, I'm, I'm not speaking for him, but just in general would like to reach out and find out about the book or whatever, then you can write him at that P.O. box. Also, I'd like to bring to your attention, there's an Instagram page by the name of Leaders Guild, and the gentleman over there covers some pretty pertinent uh, topics and information, so go give him a check out, Leaders Guild, and uh, let's uh, let's get into the show. So for this episode... We're going to get into a, I can delve real deep into this topic, but you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you too. It's, it's about time for some of the younger men uh, in this planet, in this country, in this state that we're in, for some of the younger men to pick up that baton from some of, some of us older cats and run with it because there's only so much that we can do. We can, we can bang the drum and we can, uh, you know, exhort people and really speak on the subject, but the strength and the capability and the determination to, you know, to address these issues right now are, are, are the young men out there, young men and young women that are ready to pick up that responsibility and that baton and run with it. So I actually wrote this podcast out a, a little bit more severe and more intense than, than I'm projecting it out, but I'm still putting the information out there. But you, you young people out there, this is, this is not good what's happening right now with this Klaus Schwab and everything. So you guys got to get with it. So the topic of this podcast is why do people choose mental slavery over self-realization? Which master do you serve? And I'm going to repeat that. The name of this episode, episode 186, is why do people choose mental slavery over self-realization? Which master do you serve? Right? So we're going to get into it. Now, throughout existence, throughout history, you have all of these rumors and speculations and stories about how the Freemasons are controlling the world, which to some extent might be true. Not the Freemasons, but part of a network that are the controllers and the deceivers. But you always hear about this. But oddly enough, most people don't see this as being, you know, a joke or some kind of entertaining uh, thing that they watch on Instagram and they laugh at it and they click like and dislike or whatever that they do. But you have to understand that um, this is this is the reality that we're living in today, you know. So did you realize that your masters are keeping you enslaved in a real-life matrix system? And the plan of this matrix system is literally a one-world government. With Klaus Schwab, us eating bugs, people dying to save the environment. When that whole, they talk about carbon footprint when one volcano or two volcanoes erupting produce more carbon than... Mankind has ever produced since the beginning of time. So it's all a crock. 
and they want you to look over here and say we're saving the environment but really what they're trying to do is they're trying to wipe us out so understand that and i'm not even going to get into the vaccines and and the pharmaceutical companies what they're, what they're doing to us people should be checking out dr alfonso cb s-i-b-i and see uh you know some of the things that he purports as far as natural healing and natural living and remedies but i digress so as you sit there with your so-called smartphone looking at ways to enmesh yourself deeper into this Babylon matrix system, all that's happening is they are corralling us all into a battery farm so that we can serve this matrix system and basically they can take over the whole planet and you, your kids have no future. You have no future. We're going to be eating bugs. And all of this, uh, th this World Health Organization and World Economic Forum, WEF. I mean, this is all real stuff, man. And it's they're ready to ready to unleash it on us right now as you sit there and play with your so-called smartphone. Now, as always, I speak on the state of humanity today, but I will also provide you with some smartphone-based solutions that you can use to show you how to walk down the path of immortality, enlightenment, and self-realization. So a lot of people put forth... A lot of this news and a lot of this information and what ends up happening is you get an overload and as a result of the overload you go into that uh panic fight or flight mentality and at that point your brain shuts off and you're just looking for survival so i'm not just going to hammer you with negative news but i'm also as i try to do on most of my episodes going to try to provide you with some solutions and something positive because that's really the only way that we're going to get through this and out of this and 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 salvage or, or or save this world for our children and our children's children you know in perpetuity so it's very important not to just fall you know fall down into fear and woe is me and there's no solution to this because you know you have to be a fighter and this is uh something very serious that we have to address so again i'm going to put some sound clips on of some very positive speakers like mark passio and terrence mckenna and if you're a listener of the show you know the people that i listen to so just to get that uh, out front. Now, surely you could sit there and look at some puppies and, you know, some of these reaction videos and stuff and watch it for a little bit and do a like and dislike and put a comment. That's fine and that's cool. But it's all a matter of moderation and degree. So, you know, life is not all fun and games and, you know, you just laugh all day long and, you know, there's a serious time too. It's, there's a time for a man to be a man. It says... In the book of Ecclesiastes, for every season there's a purpose and time under heaven, a time to laugh, a time to cry, time to gather stones, and a time to move stones apart. So it's important that you have balance in your life and that you feed your mind because we are created in the image of God. So that 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 tells you basically everything uh, that you need to know about the level that you're at and, and, and the capability that you have and the potential that we all share because no, we're not God. But we have the spark of God within us. Man was created in the image of God. Because in the book of Genesis, he said, let us create man in our image. You know, that's exactly what he meant. He And from my understanding, the angels, and which are true, which are real, like Gabriel and Archangel Michael or Miguel, you know, they're all divine and everything like that. But there's one thing that all of these entities don't have, and they don't have that ability to see life from this side, like with our emotions and our feelings, whether good feelings or bad feelings or whatever, like experiencing real life. And people don't realize that there's no way 
that you can learn how to really laugh. Or how could you really laugh if you've never really cried? Right? That's the whole yin and yang. So again, we're gonna we're gonna get into this. And I'm gonna give you an illustration of what I'm trying to say. And again, I've spoken on this many, many times on this podcast, but literally right now, today is December 27th, 2022, Tuesday. Right now, as we speak in, in the inner cities and, and probably in some backwaters in Tennessee and you know, some you know, Mississippi and some of these places too. I mean, but right now in, in, in these major cities, Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, uh, let's St. Louis and some of these cities, you have young men that are out there, what they call spinning the block, looking to kill one another for rep so that they can get a record contract or so they can get more street credit, more credibility. Because right now in the streets and in the, in the cities, you really are not going to get any respect or any validation unless if you've committed some crimes and posted it on Instagram and killed your own brothers and sisters on the street like you've been instructed to do by this matrix system. Because it's it there's many angles to it, and I'm going to try to break it down as quickly as possible because they all fit together like pieces to a puzzle, but you, you got to pay close attention. So here's what we have. They want to drop this one world government on us. And the only way they can do that is first by separating us, right? The races, the genders, and everything like that. That's why you're seeing everything that you're seeing right now, because they want to create confusion and they want to create demoralization. When you have a person that doesn't love his family, that doesn't love his tribe, and that is demoralized through all of this free, endless pornography that they have, basically almost free drugs, you know, because they're out there available for you right in the corner and you can, you know, you can get the drug of your choice and do whatever. I mean, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. But in reality, what ends up happening right now, like I said, in these urban centers and these big cities and some of the smaller cities, these young men, they're looking up to these rappers because in their neighborhood, they don't have a big education. Most of them grew up without dads like me. My dad died when I was six, so I didn't really know what that's about. I had to kind of be my own dad in a sense. That's why I took, you know, took on studying so, so, uh, so much because I needed direction and I knew that there was something better in life for me. So a lot of these young men and, and young people in these urban centers and these cities, they look up to these rappers that um, they look up to because they have money, they have cars, and a lot of that money is fake because they buy it on Amazon. It's called movie money. They use it to make movies and stuff. Check check it out if you think I'm kidding. You could go right to Amazon. So they look up to these, uh, 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 what do they call them, influencers, rappers, entertainers, and, and they say, wow, well, he's successful because um, he's he's his record is getting airtime and he's collaborating with different artists and he's doing all of these different things, rapping, and what they're rapping about is basically killing one another. So, okay, fine. He might write all of these lyrics and, you know, have this great ability to write lyrics and to, and to rap, you know, and to spit. But he he goes nowhere because he has no street cred. So in order for him to get listened to and get respect on the streets, he's got to commit crimes. He's got to kill people. He's got to shoot what they call spin the block. Ops and all that stuff. You people out there that know what I'm talking about that speak the lingo, that speak the schlingo. Um... So as a result, they're killing one another. So now here's the flip side of that, okay? Because first of all, they're destroying our community. You know, again, I'm Puerto Rican, and, you know, not that I have a distinction between Puerto Rican and whatever, we're all in the same boat. But 
it puts us in a situation that if you live in a, in a city, you're worried about your mom, you're worried about your house getting broken into, you have all of these different fears. So you, you, you're enslaved, right? So now here's the step two of it. And now that now this one world government, they're achieving uh, their goals because now they're separating us. Now, on the flip side of it, you might have people that are not in the inner cities or in the urban, but just regular everyday working people, even rich people, whoever, but they're in fear because of all the crime that's taking place and the people that are getting car, carjacked and shot and all of these different things. So now they're in a state of fear. So what does that mean? That creates more separation, more confusion, more demoralization and separating the family even more. But here's the kicker. There was a philosopher by the name of Hegel and he had what's called the Hegelian dialectic. And what the Hegelian dialectic dictates is this. It's problem, reaction, solution. So what's the problem? The problem is the crime in the inner cities and the crime all over the place now because it's ubiquitous, ubiquitous everywhere. There's all kind of crime, murders and everything. So the problem is the crime, right, which generates fear. So the reaction to that is that the population and people in general, the reaction to the crime is uh, fear. So you have the problem, which is the crime, the reaction of the everyday people, which is fear, which again puts us under control because we're in the fight or flight, right? So problem is the crime, reaction is our fear, and the solution is the government coming out saying, you know what, I know you're afraid and in fear, but we're going to protect you. But the only way they're going to protect us is to enslave us and take away all of our freedoms. So what would happen if all of that crime just stopped in the inner cities everywhere? If, if the violent crime and people were not killing one another and in fear of one another and, and, and doing all of these demonic things, you know, because they, a lot of these rappers, even they, they say they're on demon time. I mean, what is that, man? Is that what we need? Is that what you want for your kids? So connect these dots, right? What if everyone, even in the inner city, if they began, uh, and I'm not accusing everybody in the city of being like this. I'm just telling you the reality of what we see, because these district attorneys are letting these murderers out and rapists and such and pedophiles. They're just letting them out like after a day or two, even the Sam Bankman freed with the FTX, you know, billions of dollars this guy took. And he was, you know, he was locked up in on bail. His parents, of course, are, you know, of that 1%, but they let him right out and he stole billions of dollars. But if a little kid steals a you know, a candy bar, they're going to put him in jail and put, give him a, a police record. I'm not exaggerating. But then again, they're going to let him out, you know, the next day. It's it's a crazy world. So something to chew on and something to think about. All right. Let, let's try to get to some of these young people, people that you know and spread the word that uh, this is what they're running on. This is a Hegelian dialectic. A lot of demonic spells, a lot of real demonic stuff that's taking place right now because I think Beyonce has this new thing where she's, She's a goddess and people are worshiping her. That, you know, people, they think they can get away with this stuff, but eventually this is going to catch up to you because, it, you, you know, this is not the only life that we live in. There's an eternity and these people are really going to have to pay that price. So I don't want to get too far into that, but what I'm going to try to do right now is I'm going to try to get into some positive um, sound clips and things that, you know, you can listen to and if you're not aware of these things, you know, you can start feeding your mind some positive things and get away from that echo chamber of negativity, of demoralization, of hate and fear, all right, and move into a positive direction. Because regardless of all of this that's taking place right now, you need to live your life and you need to 
really be in a position where you take provide for your family, you take care of your family and your loved ones, and the same stuff that I speak about all the time. And you're not going to find this inside the walls of a church or anything like that. It's going to be you. If you attend a church, and if that's something that you choose to do, and they're giving good doctrine, that's great. That's amazing for you. But I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer. I have a one-on-one -on -one direct relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and God, and that's how I move, and that's what I do. And uh, I take it into my hands to, you know, provide and take care of my own family too. So that's <laughs> that's a lot to chew on right there. But again, I'm going to put some uh, positive clips on here so we can uh, listen to it. And uh, hopefully this is something that's going to get you moving in the right direction and have some positivity in your life. So let's get into it. Fellas. Have you made a lot of money out of your music? Money. I mean, what is, how, much is, how much is a lot of money to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Have, have you made, say, millions of dollars? No. Are you a rich man? When you mean rich, what do you mean? You have a lot of possessions, a lot of money in the bank. Position make you rich? I don't, I don't have that type of richness. My richness is life forever. Most people don't think that they're under mind control. Most people don't think that they have a religion, even if they claim, oh, I, I don't have a religion, okay? I'm not a religious person. They have a religion because there are two universal world religions and they are both owned and controlled by the dark occult priest class, okay? It is based upon belief or dogmatic belief systems, unquestioned beliefs, not for the search on the search for truth. That's not what religion is based upon. Ultimately, this father aspect of this trinity is controlled by a dark occult priest class that are satanic, that are Luciferian. Okay? They are the ultimate deceivers, the puppet masters of this world. Religion, which is their invention, is the essence of all mind control. And it is the basis for their old world order, which over thousands of years broke down. And that's why they invented a new system. Okay, because that old world order was based on direct rulership under the divine right of kings, of these kings that, you know, these beings that claim to be given power directly from God to rule over other people. And that notion is no longer really accepted by people, yet it has been replaced by two universal world religions, okay? It is largely an internal process, it is largely an internal form of control because it's based, again, on belief. So this is, they're getting us to emotionally identify with the accumulation of money and being in fear if we are without it. Because we believe nothing can be done without this substance. Because so many other people believe that nothing can be done without it. Which is all a lie, all a deception, all untrue. Money never has been real, isn't real now, never will be real. It's a, a stand-in for energy, a proxy for energy, but it is not energy itself. You cannot eat money to get energy. Okay, yeah, you can burn the bills with some fire and use it for fuel, but... The actual construct of money is not energy. It is a, a, a deception for energy. Again, 
It is something put in place of energy, a proxy. Food is energy. Water helps us to, to stay alive. Clothing keeps us warm. Fuels keep us warm and cook our food, etc. These are forms of energy. Money is, is a construct that exists only in the mind. And it, they get us focused on it emotionally. So it perpetuates apathy about anything that is real, anything that is true. We're focused on this illusory thing that doesn't exist. Human beings worship money. This is their new god. This is the new god of the new world order. It is the ultimate religion. Because even people who don't believe in the authority of man believe in money. This is a complete belief, and it is the ultimate religion to which people will eventually have to say through apophysis, this is not true. This is not what the truth is. Whereas, money, whereas religion is about thought control and money is about emotional control, government controls actions of people. It perpetuates cowardice because people don't want to stand up to the entity that has been granted this monopoly on violence, which doesn't exist. You can't grant somebody the right to do a wrong because it's not a right. It's a wrong. Government is based entirely upon the erroneous belief in this concept of authority, the authority of man, which as we've already seen derives from this original divine right of kings of this occult dark priest class, this Satanist and Luciferian dark priest class that claims that they are our rightful rulers because the gods gave them the right to rule over us. And this belief in authority is perpetuated by everybody that believes in the concept of government, which as we've already said, simply means mind control. Government is the violent enforcer for the father, the dark occultists, and the mother, the banksters, the financialists. And it is the implementation of their new world order. This is how this system of control works, and this is what needs to stop being believed in. This is how it fits into worldview. These things are part of our worldview. We believe in them as real. We identify with them and take part in them as a people. And that needs to stop. We need to say no. We need to employ apophysis and say no to these things. Why? Because they are all illusions. We are addicted to erroneous belief systems. Okay? And we're addicted to the concept that things have always simply been this way and there's no choice in the matter. That it's just... An, an endless program that is running and it's always going to be this way when that is simply not true. That axiom itself is untrue. Change is possible because we are the ones who are holding this system up through our beliefs in its primary tenets, which are money and authority. What I call the great religions of universal slavery the great slave religions. That's what these are. These are two completely illusory, erroneous ideas that crept their way into the, the construct of the human mind and set themselves up as viruses.
and people continue to go along with these belief systems, with these religions. 95% of our life is coming from the programs of life, how to live life that we get in the first seven years of life. That's why poor people stay poor and rich people stay rich. The movie The Matrix is not science fiction. It's a documentary. Every human, and it's a fact, every human first seven years is, uh, is download a hypnosis. The brain of a, a child under seven is in a lower vibrational frequency. When you put wires on a, a person's head, you read electroencephalograph, reading brain activity. A child below seven has a lower vibration than consciousness. It's called theta. Theta is imagination. Oh, that's how kids play a, a tea party with mud pies, but to them it's a real thing. A kid rides a broom, it's a horse. It's, that's theta, imagination. Theta is also hypnosis. And the idea is this, before you can become conscious, if you don't have any programs, what are you gonna be conscious of? So nature makes the first seven years how, what kind of programs are required to live on this planet? I say, how do you get them? Theta is hypnosis. You just watch. You watch your parents, you watch your siblings, and your community, because you have to learn how many hundred thousand rules, think about it. Just to be a functional member of a family and a functional member of a community, there are rules. I teach an infant these rules. I say, oh, you don't have to. First seven years, they just they observe it and just download it. Look, this is not new. I mean, there's the famous book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Sure. And basically said, you come from a poor family and you could struggle your whole life and try to get rich, but you're not going to make it. And if you come from a rich family, you could be stupid your whole life and make it. Not because it was thinking, but it was unconscious behavior that was downloaded from rich families into kids, uh, which is unconscious. So they're, they're making the right moves unconsciously. If they engage their conscious mind, then they look stupid, but it's unconscious. And that's the same thing with poor people. Poor people have beliefs from the family Oh, you can't make it, life's a struggle, things are hard, who do you think you are? And if that's the program you get, then 95% of the day you will sabotage yourself. And that's why poor people stay poor and rich people stay rich, because of the programming. 95% of our life, this is a fact, comes from those programs in the subconscious. Every day, only about 5% of the life are you using conscious, which is creative. 5%. So your life is being lived even though you think you're living your life. Exactly, and you don't see it because it's called subconscious, below conscious. And the Jesuits, for 400 years, they were boasting. People didn't understand. They say, give me a child until it's seven and I will show you the man. They've been saying that for 400 years because they knew seven years was the program period. And 95% of your life after that will be whatever that program is. So, you don't have to try and think about what happened. I just say, look at your life. The things you like that come into your life come in because you have a program that supports them. But anything you struggle with, work hard at, put a lot of effort into making it happen, why are you working so hard? Inevitably, you have a program that doesn't support that conclusion and you're trying to override the program. So uh, you don't need to do a lot of strength and psychology stuff. You just look at your life and say, where am I struggling? Because wherever you're struggling, Inevitably, it's a program in your subconscious that does not support that destination you've been looking for. The conscious mind uh, is creative and can learn in any number of ways. Read a self-help book, go to a lecture, listen to this program, and conscious mind's gonna get some awareness. 
And I go, yeah, but subconscious mind doesn't learn that way. I go, right, it doesn't. Subconscious mind learns in two fundamental ways, naturally. Hypnosis, which is the first seven years. And after age seven, how do you put new programs in? Repetition, practice. You want to drive a car? You didn't learn, learn how by just getting in the seat and put the key in. You had to practice driving the car. You want to learn uh, the alphabet. How many times did you go from A to Z? Uh, you know, try to go to A to Z before you can complete it. Once you completed it, you didn't have to go back and do it again. So two phases. You want to train the subconscious mind? Hypnosis, uh, repetition. The, uh, I like the last one because there's a new phrase that's bandied about called fake it till you make it. Mm. Meaning if you're not a happy person, I say you want to be a happy person, then repeat all the time. I'm happy. I'm happy. I say, well, you don't look happy or anything. You say, no, I, who am I talking to? By repetition, I'm talking to subconscious. If subconscious gets, I am happy, and 95% of your life comes from that subconscious, there'll be a point once the subconscious got, I am happy, you don't have to say it again. Okay. It'll be automatic. And that's that why we pe see people do affirmations and gratitude journals and stuff, because if you do that daily... It's repetitive, and that's the, that's the secret part. Look, putting a sticky note on the refrigerator is more like a suggestion, but it's not a repetition. So it doesn't work very well. But you have to do, repetition is a, is a habit. You, it's making habit. So you got to do something religiously in the sense of repeating it, repeating it, repeating it to make it work. What is life? For Nietzsche, it's that which overcomes itself. It eats itself and births itself getting more powerful with each iteration. Man came from ape, but what comes after man? Nietzsche would say that it's the overman. The overman is the next evolution of life, and it'll be more powerful than anything we've ever seen. None of us can be the overman, but we can be the catalyst for it. We can become the fruit that carries the seeds of a sweeter future, the fertile soil from which the grandest tree grows and the clouds out of which the lightning comes. But before we can give birth to the overman, we have to become free spirits. We have to become fertile soil. In this video, I want to go over the three stages that the spirit must go through to become free. When the spirit comes into being, it's confronted by the great golden dragon. The dragon is beauty and terror, awe, and fear, protector and destroyer. It's decorated with thousands of glittering scales and on every scale, all of the things that you must do are written. The dragon says that the value of all things and all things of value have already been written on my scales. The spirit is filled with awe and respect for the dragon, but in realizing the greatness of the dragon, it realizes its own inadequacies. The spirit wishes to serve the dragon and learn everything that it must do so that it may take part in its greatness. The first transformation takes place and the spirit becomes a camel. The camel is a preserver. It studies, absorbs, and upholds the values of the dragon. It's disciplined. It maintains order in the realm by bearing the burdens of others. It takes pride in its ability to bear burdens, and it should. In many ways, this is an act of heroism. The camel bears the burdens of others, and in doing so, lightens their load. But eventually, 
the camel realizes that not all things should be preserved, and some burdens are too much to bear. It realizes that it's become a slave to the will and values of another. The camel is merely a tool. The dragon which once allowed life to survive and thrive is now the thing that holds it back. The camel yearns for freedom, and so the spirit must transform again. The camel, a beast of burden, becomes the lion. The lion is a destroyer. It confronts the dragon, and for every you shall, it says no. To every you must not, it says I will. The lion stands against tradition and the status quo. It starts to see certain traditions as unworthy of being preserved. Instead of serving the dragon, the lion battles it for freedom. In this moment, the spirit must learn to destroy the thing that it once respected the most. This is difficult because overcoming the dragon means that the lion also has to overcome a part of itself. But this isn't the end. Like the camel, the lion is a reaction. The spirit is still tied to and dependent on the dragon. But this battle for freedom, the courage to say no, opens up a new space of possibility. If destruction is possible, so is creation. If we can fall, then we can rise. A third transformation must take place, and the lion must become the child. The child is a creator. Creation is a redemption. All of the mistakes of the past, including our own, can be redeemed if something better can be made from them. The child must learn to forget the past and not hold resentment to those who came before. Those who came before did, after all, fertilize the soil out of which they grew. Every form of life preying on each other and giving birth to one another led to the birth of you. Can you redeem all of their pain and suffering? Can your life be used to create something that benefits all of life? The child is a new beginning. It lives by its own values and its own will. It has the potential to redeem the past and give birth to a brighter future. The camel, the lion, and the child. These are the three stages that the spirit must traverse to become free. But most people never even become a camel. The story of the three stages is a story of self-overcoming. It's the story of the one who can become tradition before overcoming tradition. The one who can overcome themselves becomes more powerful, and through creation, they can make all of life more powerful. They can redeem our sufferings. Who among you can become the overflowing cup from which others can drink? The ocean that can't be contaminated by a dirty river, and the sun around which all the planets revolve. Like the sun, can you shine unconditionally for all around you, unconscious of even the good that you do? Those of you who can, Nietzsche would say, are the storm cloud out of which the overman will thunder. Hi, I am Lalit Vasist and you are watching Engineering Made Easy. Scientists have found proof of God in the code of DNA. But what did they found in the DNA code that made them believe in the existence of God? Keep watching the video to get the answer. As you know that a computer program is a series of binary numbers that is ones and zeros. This sequence of ones and zeros instructs the computer what to do. 
In the same way, all the functions that are taking place inside the cell of the body are controlled by an incredibly complex and extremely long code written in the DNA, which is placed inside the nucleus of all the cells of our body. But now, the question arises how this complex code of DNA convinced scientists of the presence of God. Let's try to understand it with the help of a simple example. Suppose you are walking on a beach and suddenly you see a message written on the beach sand. The message is, Michael is my best friend. Then what is the possibility that this message was just written by chance, by the random waves? You will say, no, it's not possible. How these waves of the ocean can write this message? This message is an information that must have come from the intelligence. So, it is not possible for us to neglect an intelligent mind behind such a simple meaningful message carrying information. So, the point is, information comes from intelligence. According to Dr. Francis Collins, director of the Human Genome Project, one can think of DNA as an instructional script, a software program sitting in the nucleus of the cell. Now, if we see the complexity of the code written in the DNA, it will boggle your mind. The letters of the programming language written in the DNA are A, T, G and C, just like the letters of computer programming language 1s and zeros as what the computer will do is decided by the program placed inside its memory that may be hundreds to thousands of letters long. In the same way, whole functions of the body are decided by the DNA code having its copy placed inside each cell of the body. This DNA code is nearly 3 billion letters long and its instructions are written by different sequences and arrangements of the four letters A, T, G and C. A unique combination of these letters instructs the cell how to carry out extremely complex body functions. These four letters of DNA code A, T, G, C are actually names of four chemicals. These are adenine, thymine, guanine and cytosine that respectively stand for A, T, G and C letters. As 11000101011101 is an example of a computer program instruction in the binary language with letters 1s and zeros. Similarly, A, G, A, G, T, G, G, C, T, C, A, C, T, C, C, T, G, A, A is an example of an instruction in the DNA code written by using four letters A, T, G and C. Now remember the example of message written on the beach again. If such a simple message written on the beach cannot be written by chance or randomly by sea waves and needs an intelligent mind conveying a piece of information, how is it possible to neglect an infinitely intelligent superintelligence who has written that incredibly long, dense and complex code of 3 billion letters inside the nucleus of each cell. Who placed that code there? Is it just by chance? Do you know how much complex the DNA code is? The DNA code contains all the information that makes up an organism, all the features that makes you 
every quality and trait that you possess, every chemical reaction taking place inside your body and lot more. This code is transferred to the next generations. That is the reason why a child has many characteristics similar to his or her parents. It's interesting to note that a child shares 99.5% of the DNA with his parents. Everything that is happening inside the cell is instructed by the DNA code written in the language of four letters A, T, G and C. Not only this, this code has instructions also for auto-repairing itself. This 3 billion lettered code is copied to new cells before a cell dies, so the information is not lost after the death of the cell. These all unbelievably complex functions are performed by the DNA code at extremely high speed without you even noticing. This 3 billion lettered code is so long that if a person types one word per second for 8 hours a day continuously, it would take him 50 years to type the human genome, that is, the DNA code. And this code is not just about its length. The code has to instruct the cell to complete highly complex tasks. So it's obvious that job to write this program is beyond the limits of a human mind. No program has ever been written by chance. If you are a computer programmer, then you can understand how much intelligence, concentration, creativity, pain and time it takes to write a simple code of just few hundred words if we want to get a task done by instructing a machine. Can that computer program be written without an intelligent programmer by itself, by chance? No. So how can we think that this incredibly long code of 3 billion letters that is unbelievably complex and the densest storage of information in the universe can be written without any super intelligence behind it? Who is that programmer? That must be no one other than the God itself. Therefore, according to many scientists, God has shown its presence in the DNA code by showing his infinite intelligence. For many researchers, this is the proof of God placed inside every cell of our body. Credit and such, and I get wrapped up in the episode and, and neglect to do it. But um, definitely Terence McKenna deserves recognition. Uh, Terence McKenna was born in 1946 in Panoa, Colorado, and he died in 2002 in uh, San Rafael, California. So, Terrence McKenna is an individual that it's really hard to put a title or a label to him and to his work. So, I'll make an effort here to, to do my best of what Terrence McKenna is to me. And to me, basically, first and foremost, uh, Terrence McKenna was a prophet. He was a shaman and he was a bard. Bard is an old uh, Irish term from the Irish tradition. But I guess if you had to fit him into a box... He was an ethnobotanist, an author, a speaker, a historian, a philosopher, a chemist, and a cultural physicist, I guess you would say, if that word exists. If not, it exists now. And just an all-around badass genius, which our planet was fortunate enough to have him amongst our ranks. And he went way too soon, in my opinion. But, you know, Terrence McKenna lives on forever in his, uh, in his talks recommend you guys go to YouTube and just click on any talk that he does and just bear with him and listen to him because the guy 
has a mind that's so expansive. I mean, listening to him, you could literally feel the neurons in your brain kind of uh, expanding as he speaks. So in this talk, do yourself a favor listening to this. You don't play this at 1.5 speed or 2 speed. You know, you listen to this normal speed and you need to really pay close attention to him as he speaks because he just drops references of philosophers and books and Finnegan's Wake and just Pascal and Whitehead and Chardon and Plato. I mean, he, he's a genius mind and he integrates history, philosophy, chemistry, ethnobotany, Buddhism, the Tao. I mean, he's, he's a genius. He's a genius and he's someone that I think is w way underrated and way under-recognized. Um, he's not everybody's cup of tea. Some people listen to him and they kind of start uh, fiddling with their cell phone or, you know, putting on a PS2 game, it's a PS2 or whatever whatever game is relevant now. I'm not a gamer. So, yeah, he's, he's a, a tremendous mind, you know. And listening to him will do nothing but do you good, okay, as far as uh, expanding your mind and, and your, uh, your perception and your horizon, you know. So stick with it, listen to it, get what you can out of it. And you probably have to play it a couple of times to actually get a, the best comprehension you can from his talks, especially in the beginning if you're not familiar with him. He has a very expensive vocabulary, so it's not like he's trying to show off or it's not like he's trying to be very, um, like he's trying to pontificate on something. You know, the difference between somebody pontificating and someone that is dropping real knowledge is that person pontificating are usually politicians, salesmen, and people that babble on and on like they're trying to persuade you to believe or buy or engage with something they're selling, like snake oil. And with McKenna, nothing is further from the truth. This man... I can't even put it into words. He's just he's he's been life changing for me. One of the you know one of the biggest uh, people that altered my perception and my reality and my knowledge base. You know by listening to him. In this talk, Terrence McKenna reflects and makes observations on a bumper sticker that he noticed on the highway, and it was a real simple simple bumper sticker, and uh, he just gets into it from there and he just takes off. So let's get into that, and I just don't want to add too much to this because uh, this is going to be very, very, um, very dense material. So again, hopefully you enjoy it. I'd like to get a little feedback from you guys to see what you think of this talk and what you think about McKenna, what you think about the podcast. As you know, my information, uh, my email is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My YouTube is alphamalebuddhist. My Instagram is also alphamalebuddhist, and... Yeah, so I'd like to get some feedback on this, and thank you for you listeners. And let's get into a little bit of Terrence McKenna. Yes. We closed last night, or we discussed yesterday, a bumper sticker that I saw driving down here. And the bumper sticker said, uh, Man thinks, God knows. And then someone had bought a second copy of the bumper sticker and cut it apart and reversed it and put it under it. So it said, man thinks, God knows, God knows, man thinks. <laughs> now, it seemed to me there was a lot going on in what 
was attempting to be expressed here. First of all, something about God that God knows, that God exists in a superior state of intellection. Plato said time is the moving image of eternity. My notion of God's cognition is simply the regarding of all points in the space-time continuum with equal clarity. God knows. The limited program of knowing is thought, cognition. Man thinks. This is what man can do in imitation of the all-knowing and omniscient example of God. But implicit is that this is somehow an, a limited undertaking, this thinking of man. And, and uh, some of you may recall the famous comment of Pascal that uh, man is a reed bent by the wind. And then Pascal added, but a thinking reed. So then the second half of the conundrum was that God knows, man thinks. Now this, I thought, was very interesting because it seems to imply a relationship between the limited project of knowing, which is human thought, and the completed project of knowing, which is omniscience. God knows, man thinks. In a way, what this is saying is that God knows that man is making his way toward God. God knows man thinks. God knows that man is participating in the same project of being that God regards from this higher dimensional space. And so then this meditation on these four lines closes with the recurso which returns you then to this realization that what we are talking about is the project of knowing, Heidegger called it, carried out on two levels, on the level of omniscience and on the level of limited being. So then I meditated on this after we discussed it yesterday, and I thought tonight it might be interesting then to talk about the thinking project of that is the essence of humanness on one level, the thinking project which has as its vector, um, I call it concrescence following Whitehead's Neoplatonism, one could call it God, Teilhard de Chardin called it the Omega Point, but the, the, the um, process by which knowing transforms itself from some kind of, kind of aboriginal uh, apperception of the possibility of God into union with God. And the process that lies between these two points is the story of the evolution of human consciousness, or more properly speaking, human history. And the interesting thing, I think, about uh, the Western religions generally is their insistence on um, the tangentiality of God and history. Uh, 
that God was something to be realized in the life of each individual, but that there was also somehow a collective drama of redemption that was stretched out over a very large period of time. And history then becomes the theater, you see, of the struggle between good and evil for the redemption of the human soul. And from the modern point of view, uh, or let's be more frank, from my point of view, <laughs> this is uh, primarily something to be analyzed within the context uh, of language and our myths about it and its evolution and its potential future evolution. So I and this is in my personal life the, the great mystery to me because I feel that I'm, my intellectual style is that of a scientist and I take very seriously science and yet my, not only my faith but my uh, experience has led me to believe that the world is not a construction of space and time and matter and energy, that that mapping is uh, insufficient, that the world is instead some kind of a uh, linguistic construct. It is more in the nature of a sentence or a novel or a work of art than it is in the nature of these machine models of interlocking law that we inherit out of a thousand years of rational reductionism. The, the world only behaves as science says it should when we confine our engagement with it to information that is at a great distance from us, like reading the New York Times every day. If you read the New York Times every day, Few miracles will occur while you are engaged in that activity. Essentially what is happening is you are getting your cultural programming for the day. All your switches, if any need being, need to be reset by cultural values, are reset at that point. But when we recede into what I call the primacy of immediate experience, the the rules and models that we've been handed by science and uh, what's called common sense are just totally found to be inadequate. And I don't mean when we perturb ordinary consciousness with psychedelic drugs. I'll speak about that in a moment. But I simply mean when we go into solitude, when we go into wilderness, when we endure great travail in our lives, or when we put ourselves in extraordinary alien circumstances, then it's as though the membrane between the ego and something else, which we could call our guardian angel or the Jungian unconscious or the overmind, something like that, the membrane grows thin and the world loses its um, 
what do I want to say, its mundane character. And instead, things previously mundane begin to become charged with psychic energy. They become carriers of meaning. They become carriers of meaning. This is very peculiar. At, at a low level, it's not so astonishing. It's a kind of generalized opening to the world. Because everything is imbued with significance. That tree, that person, that greeting, that conversation is imbued with a kind of depth and significance that is satisfying. It's like living deeply, living deeply. But this phenomenon can proceed to a deeper level of introspection and relationship to the exterior. And in that case, then, this significance, which everything was previously seen to have, begins to compress or densify, and the world begins to dissolve into animate intelligence. Now, at this point, um, if you didn't bargain for this, you're probably very concerned about your mental condition. And if you aren't, your friends are. Because what you're saying at this point is, the rivers talk to me, the trees whisper in my ear. What you're recovering is the meaning. That's all, the meaning that is self-evident in nature, but that we block. The meaning is so pregnant in everything that it can actually articulate itself in your native English tongue. And, uh, you know, talking rocks, talking trees, talking boulders, we define this as uh, pathology. It means, uh, in technical jargon, a severely diminished ego is in danger of overwhelmment by uh, material from the inchoate and disorganized unconscious. Well, but what's actually happening is that for the first time in somebody's life or experience, they are meeting the resident meaning in reality with its force, unblunted, by uh, conditioning and denial. And um, this is some kind of a linguistic process. We, and all nature, I think, swims in some kind of sea of signification of which we are, in the same way that the amphibians were able to drag themselves out of the primitive oceans of this planet into air and exist in a completely different dimension, we, whether grandly or perversely the verdict is not yet in, we dragged ourselves out of the sea of telepathic interconnected signification that united all life and we exist, panting and pop-eyed, in this other dimension called history, ego awareness, presence of self, sense of loss, anticipation of gain, all of these uh, dimensions of experience really have been added to what was previously the animal Tao, just the howling at the moon 
Tao of animal existence. And to this we have added, you know, a dimension of future anticipation, a dimension of regret, a dimension of how do I make choices, and so forth and so on. Um, there is not a... I don't put a, a moral uh, judgment on this, but it has to be said that in the tradition of the West, this has been viewed classically as the fall. This is the fall into names instead of realities, into uh, constructs of reality rather than reality itself. And this has now been uh, inculcated into each and every one of us as, you know, both the glory and the, and the trauma of human existence, which is our extraordinary ability to reside in and be in language. So, for instance, you know, I've made this example before. A child lying in a crib and a hummingbird comes into the room and the child is ecstatic because this shimmering iridescence of movement and sound and attention, it's just wonderful. I mean, it is an instantaneous miracle when placed against the background of the dull wallpaper of the nursery and so forth. But then mother or nanny or someone comes in and says, it's a bird, baby, bird, bird. And this takes this linguistic piece of mosaic tile and, and places it over the miracle and glues it down with the epoxy of syntactical momentum. And from now on, the miracle is confined within the meaning of the word. And by the time a child is four or five or six, there no light shines through. They're, they have tiled over every aspect of reality with a linguistic association that blunts it, limits it, and confines it within cultural expectation. But this doesn't mean that this world of signification is not outside, still existent, beyond the horizons, the foreshortened horizons of a culturally validated language. Well, so then classically the path through this has been through use of psychedelic plants or uh, some form of ascetic practice or fasting or prayer and meditation, whatever, some way of breaking through. And it is literally presented as a breaking through, a penetration to another level, that the culture is an imprisoning bubble of interlocking <laughs> assumptions that are like a, um, a collective hallucination. I mean, I hate to say it because it's a recursive metaphor, but culture is like a delusion of some sort because it isn't true of course. It isn't true if you're uh, a Witoto. It isn't true that you came from the piss of the anaconda god when he had to get out of his canoe at the first waterfall. 
That's not really true, but that's your cultural myth and you live inside it. Our cultural myths that the world is made of things called new masons and anti-protons is of course not true either. But it's a linguistic construct that we culturally validate and live inside. And these cultural myths give permission for certain things. Basically, they give permission to ignore certain kinds of realities. So our language is uniquely set up to ignore, for example, the suppression of femininity. It's also uniquely set up to suppress the statistically uh, uh, infrequent. We really have no patience with that. We have an assembly mind mentality. What we're interested in is that things run smoothly. One can imagine a completely different mentality that cared nothing for statistical norms and only pursued the miraculous. I mean, India, in a way, is that society. They don't give a hoot for, you know, how it works on the humdrum level. But the, the, the alien, the peculiar, the other, the unexpected is revered, adored even. So these kinds of cultural values shift, but now, now, we are in a global culture with the combined understandings of five, six, seven hundred language groups and half that many literatures being poured into a global database where some people are assimilating enough of this to begin to play their part in the creation of a, a kind of global meta-program for language. And uh, I think it's interesting to talk about the form that this may take, because I see this as our... Uh, this is not our salvation, but this is the angel of our salvation. If we can transform and remake language, then we can have the conversation that we must have in order to save ourselves. But we cannot save ourselves until we have a language adequate to the problem that we're facing. And uh, English just won't do it because English is a language of subject-object uh, subject opposition. It's a language of a past, present, and future. And the kind of world we're living in is not that kind of world. Now, toiling in the background, misunderstood and uh, unnoticed for centuries, have been mathematicians laboring to create what they call meta-language of, of description that seemed to them very satisfying, to the rest of us very bewildering. And a question worth asking is, why is it that this language, mathematics, which we have so much trouble understanding, seems so tremendously powerful when it comes to the description of nature? This is not a trivial question. Why should numbers, in a sense the most abstract quintessence of the human mind, have anything whatsoever to say about the topology of three-dimensional space and time. It isn't clear. What I believe is happening, 
and we talked about this last night, generally in the form of a conservation of novelty throughout the history of the universe. But I tended last night to present the universe as a material thing. I spoke of atoms compressing into molecules, into organic creatures, into thinking beings with civilizations and so forth. But another way to think of this is a kind of take a spiritual x-ray of the material universe and then say if matter is merely the vehicle of the transformations that we call the life of the universe, well then what is the inner dynamic composed of? What is it that is striving? What is it that bootstraps itself forward? What is it that self-reflects? Well, I think what it is is it's actually information. Information is some kind of um, ontological modality that is capable of organizing any system in which it inhabits into self-reflection. So you pour information into matter and you get back DNA capable of making life. But you know, there is a persistent spiritual tradition backed up by psychedelic and shamanic experience that says that there are also hierarchies of incorporeal and disincarnate intelligence that is nevertheless highly organized. Well, until the advent of the computer, I think we were just pretty much at a loss to form any conception whatsoever of how you could have consciousness without uh, a body, but it, the computer shows us that you can have large-scale systems which have degrees, and then, you know, there's a long philosophical wrangle which we can just stand there for another time, degrees of sentience in operating systems. So then it, it seems to mean that information is the thing which uses matter, uses light, uses spirit, uses whatever it can put its hands on to organize itself into higher and higher levels of self-reflection. Well, then, to what end? I mean, what is all this? Is it just an innate drive toward totality? Or is it a process which exists completed in some higher dimensional space and we are somehow trapped in a lower dimensional matrix and we have to go uh, we have to endure the illusion that it is incomplete i mean i don't have answers for these things this is the business of theologians basically to tell us where we are in this universal machine but i think that uh what we can do to enrich our uh, experience and to feed data into our heuristic models is to begin to think in terms of language as the material that we need to work with instead of uh, public opinion or matter or even energy. It's meaning that we need to coax into our lives. Number one, as meaning enters our lives individually, we, became, we become more capable of raising our voices 
both in joyous song and in political protest, if necessary. My whole shtick, and the whole shtick of the psychedelic experience, I think, is reclaim immediate experience. Realize that you outvote all parliaments, police forces, and major newspapers on the planet. Because, who knows, they may be illusions. Complicated phenomenological forms of analysis can be carried out to show that their existence is in considerable doubt. But if you carry out this phenomenological reduction, you will discover that it reinforces the notion that you must actually exist and be real. So therefore, you start from that, that nub of immediate experience and real being, and extrapolation outward should be very provisional. I mean, I don't know uh, how Buddhism handles this. My, I, I, um, I grant you all a strong possibility of existing, but I'm not nearly as sure about you as I am about me. And, <laughs> and I don't think any of you should be any sure, more sure of the rest of us than yourself. I mean, the world could be anything, you know? It could be a solid-state matrix of some sort. It could be an illusion. It could be a dream. I mean, it really could be a dream. <laughs> so it, uh, it pays to stay on your toes, I think. In practical terms, what does all this come down to besides that we should speak from the heart clearly and with our minds engaged? Well, I, th I think that, remember I said we should see language as the stuff with which we work rather than matter. And that means uh, creating a technology of the sayable, making the complete understanding of new puns a national priority on a par with weapons development. It means exploring uh, the real implications of substituting Finnegan's Wake for the Constitution, this sort of thing. Because what we're doing, you see, is 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 pulling the beard of the linear printheads who really believe all of this stuff, who really are lost in the labyrinth of the, of the political errors of the last 500 years. It isn't going, we can't uh, overwhelm them by force of arms, nor should we wish to. Uh, they can actually be teased out of existence because they themselves feel their position to be so ridiculous. It's very interesting how uh, the way the collapse of our enemy in the Soviet Union has exposed the absurdity of our previous positions. All our previous positions are now exposed as absurd. But People don't draw the obvious conclusion. It must also mean, then, that our present position is absurd. <laughs> and so it's tremendously liberating. Our culture is, is ruined. It's, uh, it's a disgrace from which we can now simply walk away. Well, then the question is, into what? And I believe that our persistent fascination with psychedelic states of mind since prehistory forward has been because 
in the psychedelic state from the, you know, from the very beginning, there was an anticipation of the very end. And the very end still lies ahead of us. What it is, is that our nervous system is in the process of evolving us through a linguistic transformation where language, which at the beginning of the process was something that you heard, at the end of the process becomes something that you actually see. And this simple shift from seeing to hearing is the key to our being able to finally recognize each other and communicate. Print and linearity and what's called ear bias for language is what has shattered our sense of ourselves as a collectivity. A positive way of putting it is to say it's also what created the idea of democracy, individual freedom, labor unions, the vote, all of these atomized notions of human obligation and political participation arise out of print. But so do ideas like that we're all alike, because letters from printing presses on pages are all alike. The idea that products should be mass-produced out of mass-produced subunits. This is a printhead notion. It could never have occurred to anyone outside of a printing press culture and never has. These ideas have imparted to our existence a tremendous material opulence and intellectual poverty and spiritual uniformity. And now, literally, we have to illuminate our civilization. We have to take its shoddy, spiritually empty Bauhaus skeleton and illuminate it, psychedelicize it, let a thousand paisleys bloom. Uh, in other words, release the design process from a commitment to material values. Well, how can you do that? Because the bottom line of material values is the bottom line. It costs. The reason we build in the Bauhaus style, for whatever reason we got into it, we now build in that style because it's the cheapest around. And once you start adding filigrees and changing things, costs soar. How can you do that in a civilization with a cult of democratic values, individualism, and print-created linear uniformity? Well, the only way you can do it is you have to drop design costs to zero. The only way you can do that is if you build virtually. This means you build in an electronic dimension that is added on to ordinary cultural space like an orthogonal dimension. In other words, it's like a TV that you walk into. It's called cyberspace. And in cyberspace, things are built out of light. So it costs as much to build Versailles as it costs to build a hamburger stand because Versailles and the hamburger stand are just two programs that to look exactly the same on disk. So what this means is that the previous set of class-created values based on the acquisition and control of matter begin to break down. This is already happening in America on one level where, you know, 
to live as a middle-class person is to live on a better level than the Mughal emperors ever dreamed of. I mean, what Mughal emperor could stride to his refrigerator and see cases of French mineral water, juices <laughs> from the South Seas, pomegranates from South America? Eat your heart out, Mughal Delhi. No chance. So, uh, in a sense, we're beginning to create this leveling, but we have created it by looting the material resources of the rest of the world. Conceivably, it can be created in a virtual space where we would all uh, live in this world, a rather monkish existence. But, you know, there's that wonderful passage in Finnegan's Wake where he says, he's speaking of the red light district of Dublin, which is called Moycane, and he says, here in Moycane, we flop on the seamy side, but up Nient, prospector, you sprout all your worth and you woof your wings. If you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked. Well, he was advocating death as a solution to life's problems. If you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked. Uh, my solution is not so radical. I think if you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked at your local virtual reality arcade. And then you can be phoenixed in, in several ways. Well, some of what I'm saying here is, uh, is facetious. We talked last night about Stan Tennant's wonderful object. Uh, for those of you who weren't here, this is a man, a Kabbalistic scholar, who has developed a piece of sculpture such that when you illuminate it from a certain angle, the Hebrew letter Aleph appears as a shadow, and then you move the light slightly, and Aleph turns into Bet and then you move the light slightly, and so on. In order, his sculpture produces all of the Hebrew letters as shadows from this beautiful form, which he calls the lily. And uh, uh, it ties in with the, an experience that I had. That, well, first let me talk a little bit more about this lily thing that Tenon has discovered. He also made one for Demotic Greek, which, you know, for those of us who thought it was proof positive that Hebrew was the language of God, this was a real blow to the <laughs> chest, but because he did one for Demotic Greek, too, and it works just as well, <laughs> implying, and he's working on Arabic, implying that perhaps such forms exist for all alphabets. And so then I was thinking about this last night, and I said, well, if there's a sculpture in, four in three dimensions that throws the two-dimensional alphabets, then obviously in a higher dimension there must be a form which throws into lower dimensions the sculptures that make the alphabet. So that means all alphabets, all letters, lead back to a hyperdimensional surface of some sort, which can probably then be described with some kind of weird fractal algorithm. And so then I thought, wow, this is a pretty Hebraic vision of what's going on here. We have the alphabets of local languages being generated from higher dimensional objects 
that are three-dimensional that are then referent to still higher dimensional objects that through which the light of God's love passes, scattering out into the radiance of what can be said. And uh, in a way, this is sort of my vision of the millennium, that we will be resorbed into the word. You know, the whole story begins in principio et verbum et verbo caro factum est. In, in the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh. The whole cosmic drama is the mystery of what it is for the word to be made flesh. Language is seeking to birth itself into the domain of concrete existence. That's obviously what the word made flesh means. And uh, it seems to me that if the word can be made flesh, this implies a reciprocity. It implies that the flesh can be made word. And this brings us back to what I was talking about at the very beginning this evening, which is the curiously literary nature of reality. That it's much more like uh, a, a novel by Thomas Pynchon than it is like an equation by Ilya Prigozhin. And why is that? Is it because, in fact, the flesh is word? And that understanding this is the real task of uncovering our spirituality. Somehow it's a riddle, it's a conundrum, it's a koan. If we could correctly understand this, if the world did not disappear immediately, at least it would roll around in the palm of your hand like a spinning marble, as the I Ching promises. It's something about the recognition of the primacy of the word, that history is the process of the descent of the word into concrete expression, I didn't say matter, and that our relation to this retroflexive process is an ascent into the word, a going toward the approaching mystery, and a meeting there in a domain of unknowability. Essentially, I mean, this is the casting into being that Heidegger talked about. This is the going to meet the stranger. This is the flight of the alone to the alone that is the driving force of Plotinus's mysticism. Well, that's really all I have to say about that. So, uh, let me see what time it Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. 
It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast, so it's motivational and inspirational. I also have promotional t-shirts. If you go to my website, alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com, you can see the promotional t-shirts there. Reach out to me. Also, if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast, just reach out and see if I can get that done. I've been getting some really great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.